30 for 30 podcast is brought to you by our friends at State Farm. Whatever life brings your way, State Farm is here to help life go right. State Farm has over 19,000 agents across the country. 19,000 is a huge number, but it's not the number that's impressive. It's the personal service and attention to detail you can only get from your local State Farm agent. Talk to a State Farm agent today about combining the purchase of your home and auto insurance. State Farm, here to help life go right. Hello and welcome to 30 for 30 Plus. My name is Jody Avergan. Today, a bonus episode talking a bit more about our recent audio documentary. It's called Backpass. It's the story of U.S. women's soccer in the wake of the 1999 World Cup win. There was an effort to capture the momentum of that win and the star power of that team and start a professional women's league. That league, the WUSA, only lasted three seasons, and our doc looks at how and why it all fell apart. If you haven't listened to that doc, you can hit pause on this. Go to 30for30podcast.com or just look below in the feed and listen to the documentary Backpass. Only if you promise to come back and listen to the rest of this. Here to discuss two of the folks behind the piece, producer reporter Andrew Helms and producer Meredith Hadenot, who also hosted the episode. Hey, thanks for Andrew, having us. Hi. We should give a shout out to another Andrew right off the bat, 30 for 30 producer Andrew Mambo, who helped guide this over the last, it was about a year uh, yeah. long process yeah. from when we first started talking about this to when it came together. And... Um, we wanted to put it out now, a little apart from our usual spring and fall seasons, because um, there's a sort of new, larger news hook. And then, of course, there is the hook of the fact that there is a World Cup going on right now, 20 years since 1999. So before we get to these bigger think things, Andrew, you're a soccer journalist. I'm going to ask you, uh, are the U.S. women going to win? That's a tough question. Um, I will say 100% it's going to be the hardest World Cup, if the U.S. does come out on the other side as, as victors, this is the deepest, um, the most competitive World Cup we've ever had. And a big part of that is something I think we might talk about later about how the rest of the leagues around the world, from France to Germany, are starting to catch up with what the United States is doing. And the failure of this first women's pro league has a lot to do with why the gap between the rest of the world and the U.S. is shrinking. Right. And so it's so it's not about this is a weak U.S. team. This is a very strong Correct. U.S. team. It's just the rest of the world. Yeah. Women's soccer is getting better. Yeah. Okay. I don't think they're going to win. You don't think they're going to no. win? Well, I mean, in these cases, right, you just take the field, right? And yeah. You're, you're yeah. playing the yeah. odds? No, I just think I think France is really good. Oh, and yeah. All right. We'll see. Well, listeners, we'll, we'll see. By the time you listen to this, maybe Roast, we'll, roast maybe me later. Answer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so... We always ask this question right off the bat in these bonus episodes because these these episodes take, as I said, months and months, if not years, to make. And there's many, many edits along the way. And we end up leaving a lot of stuff that we still really like on the cutting room floor. So do either of you want to flag a piece of tape that you love that didn't make it into the final piece? Uh, definitely. So we talked with Lauren Gregg, who is the assistant coach at the 99 World Cup. And her interview, though it didn't make it into the final piece, totally shaped our approach to reporting and asking other people questions. And she had this great way of phrasing the, um, I, I don't want to ruin the clip if we're about to play it, but just like the the struggle of making it past the collegiate level for women's soccer players at this time. All right, let's take a listen. For God's sakes, all these kids, you know, the dreams just ended one day. They literally were there one day and ended the next, and there was nothing. Just a complete abyss. Just nothing. So when you say that shaped how you guys approach this piece, how so? 
When we talked to the players that weren't sort of already in the highest level of the game, so the players that weren't the Julie Foudis, the Carla Overbecks, it was really, we looked at their relationship to this abyss. So in talking to Shannon Box, she was deep in it. She was working at California Pizza Kitchen. You know, she was hustling to try and make soccer a part of her life, but there just wasn't any opportunity to get to that next step. And I think it also kind of went to this uh, generational challenge of that the idea for a league wasn't just, you know, something that happened after 99, that this was on the radar of people close to the national team for decades. You know, Lauren Gregg talked about there was a proposal after the 96 Olympics to try and start a pro league, that this was this was on the mind of people close to women's soccer for a long time. And that what made 99 so compelling is that they finally had the audience and the platform Mm -hmm. to try to do it. But we wanted to make sure that the way we told the story, that it wasn't just, you know, oh, well, a a couple of billionaire investors came in after the 99 World Cup and thought up of an idea of a pro league. It was, no, this was the dream of the coaching staff, the players, people around the women's game for a long time. And And I really like this notion that um, it's not just the story of the names we know, uh, who were probably going to be fine, right? But also, when you have to build out a pro league, you get all these other players who wouldn't have had a chance, as we just heard, after college to play at another level. Um, and so we should talk about Shannon Box, who is our kind of, we follow her arc, and she is, is really the exemplar of that story. Um, I am on her Wikipedia page right now, and I'm looking at Shannon Box's career, um, and just basically, you know, a decade of professional women's soccer, but also an Olympic gold medal in 2004 and 2008 and 2012, FIFA World Cup medals. Tell me if I'm wrong here, but it feels like without the WUSA, Shannon Box doesn't go on to, you know, one of the more storied careers in women's soccer. Yeah, as she says in the show, she was, you know, when she made the national team, she was 26. If that league hadn't existed, she would have, you know, left a long time ago and given up her dream to play women's soccer. When, when we kind of start her story she's about to apply to graduate school she wanted to get a master's in psychology and go and go that route when suddenly there was a chance for the first time for her to have a have a professional career playing soccer so 100 percent, the wsa built shannon box's national team career you know i one thing i thought about with with shannon and is related to what we were just talking about here i mean you know in the conversations we've been having around me too over the last couple years one of the big most heartbreaking elements is this notion of a career and opportunities cut short because of awful behavior, misogyny, systemic issues. And, you know, it connects here in that this, this notion of how many players would have not had the opportunity or didn't hit that perfect window of opportunity that Shannon did with the WUSA. And I don't know. I mean, is there, is there, is there a case to be made that there's kind of lost generations of great women's players who just, fell through the cracks or drifted off to other stuff because there wasn't the infrastructure in place. Absolutely. I mean, in talking about the BIS, it's like basically Title IX set the stage for women's, I mean, women's sports across the board, but I think a case can be made for specifically women's soccer to take off. And like, if you fell in between, you know, like, making the national team and being at the top level of collegiate soccer, they're just wasn't a place to go you could go abroad and Shannon has this great story of going abroad and just like totally getting worked and like being expected to play for free and like just the the drudgery of it um and it's really amazing to hear these players the astonishment they had at the 
their first paychecks. Yeah. And like being able to be paid for something that basically they had devoted their entire lives to. And those paychecks, as you point out, were pretty big. small. Yeah. yeah. One thing Shannon said back on, on Meredith's point was when she played in the second iteration of women's pro soccer WPS that started six years after this league folded, she was like, it was a totally new crop of players. All the players like Jackie Little in those six years where you need you need to make money to make a living. You can't just keep up in peak soccer fitness that whole time and have a full-time job they all went on to other stuff and so that that there was a generation of talent from the wsa that once that league went away just dispersed and and fell out of the game and never got back into it i mean six years is like almost two generations in you know in in peak sports uh timetables uh so i mentioned and the piece obviously you know tells us that the league fell apart after three seasons as best you can put your finger on it, why did the league fall apart after three seasons? It's a really complicated question and one we, we wrestled with a lot in production about how to explain why it happened. Um, I mean, I think the way I, I like to think about it, there were there were self-inflicted errors. You know, this was a league that came in with an unrealistic expectation of what it was going to cost and how long it was going to take to make money. And that was their real fundamental misjudgment from the start you know we tell the story of they're sitting in this boardroom in the middle of the first season and they realize that the 40 million dollars they've budgeted for five years is gone and it sounds really bad but you talk to folks who are close to pro sports and they're like yeah that's normal you know it costs a lot of money to build a a business from scratch and you know and that's where i think where where we wanted to take the story at the end is is kind of compare wusa to other similar professional leagues and recognize that, like, look, MLS in its first five years lost $250 million, but there were a couple billionaires willing Say to... Say that number again, by the way. $250 million in five years. And, you know, there's a story of three billionaires, basically, Phil Anschutz, Lamar Hunt, and Bob Kraft, basically decide to make a 20-year bet to save men's soccer in America. And today, the league that you have of Major League Soccer with, you know, growing of 24 teams at this point you know that is the fruit of that investment um there was no comparable investment in in women's pro soccer when this league wusa had lost 100 million dollars its investors all well-intentioned and good people didn't have the the capacity and also didn't have the commitment to to keep floating a league for decades until it made a, a profit you know major league soccer won't turn a profit until 2026. That's 30 years after it was founded. WSA got three years to be successful. And so that's, I think, a thing we don't think about enough with women's professional sports is is it's going to take a long time to, to lo- a lot of years of losses, decades of losses before you make money. Yeah, the answer is often a combination of the individual decisions and the sort of structural forces. That said, one individual who's a big part of this is John Hendricks, who was the billionaire cable cowboy billionaire, right? Yeah. Millionaire? I think multi-millionaire. Hun- hundreds of hundred millions. Hundreds of <laughs> Very rich yeah. uh, ca- cable cowboy guy who basically willed this league into existence by gathering up his rich friends. Um, and w- it took us a while took you a while to to finally get him but we all knew that it was very important to get him so meredith you want to talk a little bit about the, the process of landing that interview what the goal was to go into that interview conducting that interview and then also like where does john hendrick stand right now how should we feel about this guy who started this league but then also kind of let it fall apart under him i don't know I think Andrew and uh, John Hendricks's personal assistant were in a texting relationship okay. for about uh, two months before 
we uh, got the interview. Because um, actually, I first talked to him in, in September, and we landed the interview in February. So it was like, yeah. it was a long, it was a, a lot long of reeling haul. in. Yeah. Um, and so we uh, we flew down to Florida to to interview him at his second home with the the yacht sort of parked parked next to it. Um, and it was really interesting to see this man that everyone described as just like the nicest person. Um, and hearing how he both, like you said, willed this league into existence and scoured the earth to find new investors, but also like watching him grapple with the decisions of like if he had another chance to do this and this other this amazing platform of the 99 World Cup, falling in love with this team and watching his daughter who played competitive soccer fall in love with this team and wanting there to be role models for her and for women, uh, girls, daughters like that. And I think that really set the tone for the investment group, this idea of of dads and I think that both led to a lot of like emotional commitment they were really on board but also maybe obscured a little bit Mm -hmm. of their business sense John said literally it was like I kind of thought of it as like a philanthropy that had a business had to have some business acumen to it and that you know you you can go back we didn't use it in the podcast but the in the press conference he gave right as the league started he said you know most businesses you come up with a three-year timeline for a business to succeed. This one's a little different. This one might take four or five years to turn a profit. And that was what they literally thought, you know, that they thought with the 99 World Cup, with all of the stars they had, with Mia Hamm, we forget Mia Hamm was so famous, right? Mia Hamm was in commercials with Michael Jordan. She was that level, that there was no way this league couldn't take off in three or four or five years. And when we talked to John at his, you know, home in Florida, he said, you know, if I could go back and do it again, that would be the thing that I would that I learned I I didn't have I'd never run a pro league I'd never been involved in pro sports I didn't realize that it was going to take 10 15 20 30 years and that was you know when he when he went around and pitched investors you know his friends from Comcast and Time Warner he pitched them on a vision of a league that would turn a profit in five years it became pretty apparent early on that that wasn't going to happen and that made it that much harder for him to wrangle all these guys and keep getting them to put more money in because they always would say john you told me this was going to make money it, now you're telling me it's not going to make money for 5 10 15 years how am i going to keep doing this and so that that was the the struggle they had but then when we compare it to what you told us about the kind of billionaire investors who are on a 20 year timetable with men's soccer are you saying they're not viewing that as a charitable sort of investment they're thinking of that as a just a longer timetable i think so yeah it feels like if you're just throwing money at something for 20 years there's got to be some level of charity yeah. in you but maybe, maybe yeah not. no i mean i think i think this is the you know investment's all about belief right investment is about seeing something that's not there and believing there's going to be a market for it the guys who threw money behind major league soccer you know when they were doing that major league soccer's tv ratings were abysmal they were point ones they were the same as wsa's tv ratings it's not as if there was some huge calling for men's soccer in 2001 but there were people who had a vision and believed that they would get there and that was not present for 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 women's pro soccer and that i think is a question that we kind of have to look in our in mirrors as a society and say why is it that we always see a path for men's pro sports but not a path for women's pro sports so I want to get to that, and I want to get to some of this larger context about the relationship between U.S. women and U.S. soccer. Um, Alex will talk a little bit about the actual 
craft of making this piece. We will do all that in a moment, but first, we're going to take a quick break. 30 for 30 podcasts are brought to you by OnStar. Now, no one likes to think about getting in a crash, but if one happens in an OnStar-equipped vehicle, you have people looking out for you. Special sensors can alert OnStar advisors to a crash. They can connect to your vehicle and get you the help you need, even if you can't ask for it yourself. Because when the unexpected happens, the last thing you want is to be alone. OnStar, be safe out there. Automatic crash response requires OnStar plan, working electrical system, cell reception, and GPS signal. OnStar links to emergency service, details, and limitations at OnStar.com. 30 for 30 podcasts is brought to you by Delta Airlines. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. That's 300 cities where everyone does the same things you do. That's 300 cities where the people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. 300 cities where people miss someone in one of the other 299 cities. 300 cities where people sing in the car or in the shower or both poorly. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring us together, but to show us we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta, keep climbing. All right, we're back and um, we'll get to some of these big, bigger themes, but let's just do a, a few minutes on just like the making of this piece. Um, so Meredith, uh, there is some amazing archival in this piece. And I think people who listen to these podcasts will hear me say many, many times. That I think archival is the thing that sort of elevates our work on the film side and the podcast side. It's the thing we're always hunting for. We open with home home videos that Julie Foudy shot um, throughout basically that 99 World Cup and maybe beyond. Um, as a radio maker, you were the sort of lead producer and sound designer on this. What was it like to just like play with that tape? Uh, it was amazing. And I think it's so important to have somebody that's we see so much in front of the camera, like Julie Foudy, who's this national personality. Julie? What's up, Coach? So nice to have you with that damn video camera <laughs> every time somebody walks out. Brady, turn around. Three of you, give me a few words about this World Cup. One game at a time, baby. To, to have her be behind the camera and to see these like monumental events through her eyes uh, was just really powerful and really powerful tape to work with. I think also like I really wanted to tap into that 90s, 2000 nostalgia. <laughs> I think everyone had that member of the family that just had that tape, camcorder taped to their hand and like whether it was family vacations Sorry. or road trips. And I think it's just really of that time where recording something was special and is definitely a different relationship that we have now with smartphones and stuff. It's yeah, though you still get you get like that Fire Festival doc, which is basically all patched together Instagram videos. And so, you know, you have a million Julie Foudy's telling the story of a big <laughs> event, which is kind of nice, too. But yeah, like that home video element is great. And um, and Andrew, like the actual finding of that tape has a bit of a, a miss, like a caper to it as well. Right. The Julie. Tape? Yeah. Yeah, she couldn't find a lot of it. So, but she was able to track down some of it in her her basement, um, which was great. And then, I mean, the real coup was finding uh, the home videotape that she shot at the first ever WSA game. I recall shooting Billie Jean at the game and saying, you helped us be part of this. This is happening, Billie. This is happening right now. We're living this. And, uh, and the crowd of 35,000 behind her. You waited all the time for this, baby! We did it! You did it! <laughs> <laughs> history, baby! History! And so that took some creative 
hunting, but it actually ended up, it was on, so there's a guy in Texas who basically is like a soccer archivist and there's nowhere to get any of these games, but there's this guy who's got a website and I kind of emailed him. I was like, Hey, can I order some of these basically? And he'd sent me, you know, he would hand copy DVDs and send me individual DVDs of games. And so some of her home videotape had actually ended up on a show that aired on TNT, but it, it even though it was on TNT, it was actually Julie's original right. tape. So that was how, for the for that crucial bit of tape of her at the opening game with Billie Jean King, who had been such an inspiration, that actually Julie never found, but it was on TNT. And when I saw it, I was like, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's always nice to have that moment. And again, if anyone listening out there is an athlete on the precipice of doing something monumental that we'll want to talk about in 10 or 15 years please record a lot (laughs) put it in a box in the basement we'll come knocking we'll find that box in 10 years and then we'll use it in a 30 for 30 uh andrew you sort of come from a writing background you were a soccer journalist but like what was it like to turn towards audio yeah it was it was a new experience for me i've done documentary work film work but never just straight audio documentary i think one of the things that surprised me was just the the tension between conveying information and conveying emotion. Mm-hmm. And in a written piece, it's it's so easy to convey a lot of information very quickly. Um, it's a lot harder to convey emotion. And it's kind of the inverse, I think, in audio, where it was so, you know, you hear the sound in Julie Foudy's voice when that league collapses and just the raw emotion of it. And that is something that's so unique in audio and so rare. And the challenge was, how do we give the story enough information so that you're okay with it and happy and you you feel like you know what's going on so you and you don't crowd out the emotion with information i think that that was the challenge meredith and i had throughout the various cuts and drafts was finding that line so we'll end on uh this larger notion of u.s soccer and the u.s women's players um in the piece this is something i kind of learned um we hear about a a, lo- a history leading up to 99 and then it sort of plays out in the wake of 99 that there was just a lack of trust between the governing body of U.S. soccer and the women's players. As I said when we started, we wanted to, this piece to come out because this seems to be an ongoing dynamic and is actually very much in the news as we head into a new World Cup. So, uh, Andrew, how would you characterize the current relationship between the governing body and U.S. women? Not great. Okay. I mean, they literally just sued U.S. soccer three months ago. Um so that lawsuits over over gender discrimination. And, you know, one of the things Julie has said, you know, we were fighting for equitable treatment. They're now fighting the battle for equal treatment. And so that the, you know, if the 99ers kind of made those first forays into saying, you know, why is it that, uh, you know, we fly a certain way and the men fly a certain way, right? They've fought and got a lot of changes and benefits, but it's it's this current team that's now saying, you know, literally dollar for dollar, cent for cent. There's no reason why uh, if a woman's player plays 20 games and makes $99,000 a year and a men's player plays 20 games and makes close to $300,000 a year, like those numbers should not be different, especially when the women win. Yeah. All right. Well, we will end on that note. Andrew Helms, Meredith Hodnut, thank you so much. And anyone else you want to shout out who had a, a part in this piece? Yeah. Um, we'd love to shout out uh, Andrea Scott, who was our editor, Brennan Rees, who did archival research for the team, and obviously everyone who took the time to talk to us from, you know, the, I think we interviewed 16 people and used about 10 in the show, but to the, I think, nearly 40 to 50 people who we talked to in doing research. 
uh, we'd really appreciate all who contributed. Yeah. So listeners, if for some reason you haven't heard that podcast, but somehow you got to the end of this one, that's a little weird, but you can go back and listen to Backpass. You can find it at 30for30podcast.com or it's below this episode in the feed. And obviously go back and listen to our other docs from previous seasons if you haven't caught them as well. Now, two quick things. A special shout out to our friends at IFP, the Independent Film Project. This story was a result of a collaboration with them to gather new ideas. So thank you, IFP. Let's do it again. And also, we mentioned those home videos of Julie Foudy's. Now, some of those appeared in a documentary film directed by our very own Aaron Leiden. It is called The 99ers. It's part of this whole wonderful series on Title IX. You can find that on our video streaming service, ESPN+. Now, our next season of Original Audio Docs is coming later this summer. We have a really great series in store for you. We also have a cool special series between now and then. That's going to start in this feed next week. There's lots of good stuff on the horizon. Keep subscribed. Keep listening. Go back into the archives. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.